pray, God, that our hearts would, by your grace, be inclined to obey you. And Lord, I pray today that we would see your call on our lives, how to live the Christian life, how to walk with you. And Lord, I pray that we would learn not only from the situation that was happening and occurring with the people of the book of Hebrews, but Lord, we would learn from Abraham in the Old Testament, how to walk with you, how to trust in you. I pray, Lord, that you would give me the words to say. I pray that you'd be my strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open up to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 20. Verses 13 through 20. And we're continuing back from when we looked at verses 9 through 12. I want to look at that with you really quick. If you look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. And that was a significant phrase because the warning passage of Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 is one of the most severe warnings in all the book of Hebrews. It's left a lot of people feeling hopeless because they say, wait a minute, am I going to lose my salvation? Is he saying that we can fall away from the faith? And yet what happens here is it really appears that he's warning them just as Jesus did in the parable of the soil that not everything is the way it appears. And while some people have a close affinity to the things of God, and they're around the church of God, they don't know Christ. They have an awareness of him and a close proximity to him, yet they're not in Jesus Christ. But he turns around with these comforting words. He says, look, we have better confidence with you. And then he says in verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. It's as if he's saying, look, I want you to keep doing the things that you've been doing. I want you to keep walking by faith. I want you to keep abiding in Christ. And as you keep earnestly seeking Christ, you are going to experience an assurance of hope until the end. And then he says, so that in order that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And now it's as if he says, all right, and let me give you an example of someone who through faith and patience inherited the promise. And who's that going to be? It's going to be Abraham. Look at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, swear he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This morning, the title of our message is Hope and Faith in the Promises of God. Hope and Faith in the promises of God. And the way we're going to try to look at this this morning is we're going to try to examine three realities of faith, hope, and promise. Three realities of faith, hope, and promise. Before we jump in, the first point we're going to look at today is faith is linked to the promises of God. Faith is linked to the promises of God. He's going to speak about Abraham. 
To the Jews, they would have known him as Father Abraham. And, and what he wants to do is he wants to stop and say, now look, I want you to gain encouragement. I want you to guard yourself against spiritual laziness and sluggishness. And I want you to learn from Abraham because by the grace of God, Abraham demonstrates faith and patience obtaining the promise of God. And that's the very thing that he desires that these people, these persecuted believers, we think in Rome, are dealing with. So how does he guide them there? He starts with Abraham. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, let's go back a little bit. I was looking at several different people and gained help here. Kent Hughes really helped me here. And, and one of the things that we see, if we were going to go back to our Old Testament and maybe through Sunday school and what you've learned about Genesis and about Abraham, what would we think about? We would think about how God called Abram out of Ur to go to the land of Canaan. And we would think about the scary nature. Imagine today if God called you to leave your job, to leave your town, to go to a place you didn't know where you were going. You didn't know the real estate agents where you were going. You didn't know anything about where you were going. That's a big move. That's a really big move. But what does he do? He follows God by faith. And what we see is there's a progression of promises, a reiteration of promises. I'm going to look real quickly with you at some of the promises that God gave Abraham. And as we look at these promises, even as we see Abraham believe God, and we see in the New Testament, it was counted to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith. He believed on God. We see, even in that, we see a man that is frail, just like ourselves, and we see a person who struggled. We saw a person who went against the promise of God, but let's look at these. Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That promise is really listed in verses 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis chapter 12, but it's reiterated over and over as we move through Genesis, and we see in Genesis chapter 13, God continually comes back and he revisits this promise that he's given Abram. It says in Genesis 13, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. But what's fascinating is we begin to continue to go through. We may not understand it yet, but in the promise that God gave to Abram in Genesis 12, he promised that through Abram's seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so we look at a passage like this and we think, wait a minute, there's physical components to the promise that God is giving Abram but there's spiritual components. And ultimately what's happening is the promise that God gives to Abram is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I want to read you a passage. If you got your Bible and you want to go quick with me, let's look. We got to go to Galatians chapter three. In Galatians chapter three, I want us to get a sense of where this is going. In Genesis three, verse 16 is one of the key passages to all of the Bible. If you didn't understand this, you'd never understand the Old Testament. And he says in verse 16, it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This promise was pointing to Jesus. This promise was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. 
keep going back in Genesis, though. We go from Genesis 13, and we see consistently the Lord ministering to Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And and yet again, verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And what we find is, is this battle as you get into chapter 16 because of Hagar and man's idea of fulfilling the blessing. Don't we often have ideas for God? And don't we often resort to human wisdom over God's wisdom? I think if, if we can't relate to Abram in the whole situation with Ishmael, I don't think we're being honest with ourselves. And he was basically trying to figure out a way that him being old and his wife being old could actually see this promise fulfilled. And God's like, no, that's, that's not it. But we continue on and we see Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis chapter 22, really now, Isaac has come. And the fulfillment of all God promised, this son, this physical son, think about it, was the fulfillment of what God was speaking of. And Isaac would serve as the reminder that the future spiritual promise was intact. You see, Genesis 22, though, everything changes. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And, and what's amazing is we, we get clues from the text immediately that although he's a frail man, he's a man that trusted God. He's a man that desired to trust the promise of God. In verse 4, it says, On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. That's a remarkable phrase. And Hebrews 11 actually gives us background as to what was going through the mind of Abraham. And it says in Hebrews 11, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now imagine that. He's leaving, and he's going up the mountain, and he looks at the servants, and he says, we're going to worship, and we will come back, because he believed that God would be true to his promise. Through all of his struggle, through his belief that God accounted to him as righteousness, and then through the struggle with Hagar and Ishmael, God has brought him back, and now he's resolute. And he's like, wait a minute. God promised me a son. He promised a blessing to come through that son. And if he is going to call me to sacrifice my son, God must be willing to raise him from the dead to keep his promise. And here we see this example unfolding for us. We begin to see, wait a minute, Abraham in this passage is an example of how faith and patience, as he trusted God, he was inheriting the promise. Genesis 22, though, we see this alluded to in what we're looking at this morning. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Did you notice that word right there? That's significant. It's a masculine, singular, and even there in verse 18, we see a promise, or 17, we see a promise of Messiah. He goes on, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. We look at that and we say, okay, now what's happening here? Well, I was looking at this text and 
thinking, okay, now what is he speaking of when he says that he would inherit the promise? And how does this work? And, and, and Abraham died before Christ came. And so how is this fulfilled in, in Isaac in Genesis 22? And F.F. Bruce really helped me here. He says, at the time when that earlier promise was made, Abraham was childless. As time went on, however, it was made clear to him that the promise would be fulfilled through the birth of a son to Sarah and himself. By all natural reckoning, such a prospect would have been dismissed as impossible. Now keep hanging on. Listen to this. Yet Abraham believed God, and in due course, the promised child was born. On Isaac now hung every hope that the further promises of God regarding Abraham's descendants would be fulfilled. Yet it was Isaac whom Abraham was commanded to offer up to God. When Abraham's faith and obedience were shown in his readiness to do even this, he received Isaac back from the dead, as it were, and received at the same time a reaffirmation of the promises of God. Almost done. Listen to this reinforced on this occasion by the divine oath, and thus, having patiently endured, he obtained the promise. There was much in God's promise to Abraham whose fulfillment lay in the distant future, but in the restoration to Abraham of the son upon whose survival the promise depended, Abraham did, in a very substantial sense, obtain the promise. He, he trusted God. And as God literally protected Isaac in that moment, God was fulfilling, in a sense, of that which was to come, his promise to Abraham. I, I was thinking about this, and as I was studying and listening to others speak about this and reading commentaries about this, the one common theme that began to happen was is that God intends his people to walk with him by trusting in his promises. The question that I think we need to ask ourselves as we wade into this this morning is, are you actively trusting in the promises of God? Are the promises of God dear to your heart? Are the promises of God actively being obeyed in your life? I was thinking about, you know, there's so many applications here, but daily we live in a world where we're tempted to be conformed to the, this world, right? We're tempted to be worried and anxious and angry. We're tempted to despair we're tempted to lose hope when we sin. We're tempted to think God is done with us when we fall prey to that sin that so easily besets us. And what are we faced with in those moments? In every one of those circumstances, we're faced with whether or not we're going to believe what God has promised us. When you worry, when you're filled with anxiety, do you trust in the New Testament of casting all your burdens upon him? because he cares for you? When you fall into that sin and you're thinking, I'm done, there's no way that the gospel applies to me anymore? Are you comforted by the promise of 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are you comforted when you think the world is falling apart and you're going through family issues, you're going through personal sickness, you're going through the loss of loved ones? Are you comforted by the hope and the promise of a new heaven and a new earth? Because ultimately, if we are not living, trusting the promises of God, it is a sure sign that we have fallen prey to spiritual sluggishness. You see, you see how he's building this argument all the way through? We talked about the rest of Christ, and we talked about his rest is so multifaceted, isn't it? There were so many different types of rest that the author speaks about. But one aspect of that was, are you living out of the rest that Jesus has brought you? Are you living out of it? Are you walking with him? Are you walking by faith? Because these were believers who were tempted to say, you know what? I'm going back to Judaism. I can't do this anymore. This is too hard. 
And what do they need? They need to walk earnestly in order that they can have a full assurance of hope until the end. And as they walk that way, the Spirit enables them with faith and patience to endure and to hope steadfastly in that all that God has said he will perform. And this morning, I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life when as a pastor, I've done everything ministerial that would have earned marks that everyone thought I was doing a good job as a pastor. But in my personal life, I was not living, abiding, and obeying the promises of God. Can you relate with me this morning? And the author of Hebrews is saying, look, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to keep going. I don't want you to despair. But if you're going to live, look at Father Abraham because he's an example that all God says he will do. So many promises. I like this passage in 2 Peter 1. It's amazing, isn't it? Because it talks about the promises of God. In verse 4, this part doesn't. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And then look at the next verse. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. And, And these promises that he speaks about it, it are, are promises that are rich and they're, they're hopeful. I, I, was, I found a quote from Brian Borgman from Octavius Winslow. He was a guy that used to fill the pulpit for Charles Spurgeon. And here's what he said about the promises of God. He said, the promises of God are the jewelry of the Bible. Every page of the sacred volume is rich and sparkling with these divine assurances of Jehovah's love, faithfulness, and power towards his people. I tell you, wouldn't we agree with that? What a wonderful statement by this, this brother in the Lord. Wow, that's, that's a rich phrase, isn't it? But let me ask you something. I think that we read a passage like that and we're reminded if you want to be spiritually sluggish, I hope you don't want to be, but if you were trying to discover how you could be, don't read the Bible. Don't get in the word of God. Why? It's in the word of God we discover the certain assurance and promises of our Lord. I tell you, I don't know about you, but a sure way to be spiritually sluggish is to stop continuing what we've done before. It's to get apathetic and lazy. It's to get away from the word of God, to get away from his people, to get away from the church to live life being conformed to this world. But what happens? The author's saying, look, keep going. There's promise after promise. If you want to find something exciting, you know, we often give it to graduates like it's something only graduates ought to do, but it's the promises of the Bible, you know, promise book or whatever it's called. I can't remember. And, but you know what? That ought to be something we cherish. That ought to be something that's like gold to us because we long to live following the promises of God. Number one, faith is linked to the promises of God. But second of all, the second reality that we learn about faith and hope and the promises of God is that these promises are guaranteed by God. These promises are guaranteed by God. All right, how many of you parents have ever been busted for not keeping your word? Anybody in here? Some of you are thinking, nah, I keep my word to my kids. I'm a strong, ethical person. I've looked at Will many times. Will, how you doing, buddy? And, and I said, man, hey, Daddy, can we go fishing? I don't have time today, Will. I don't have time. Maybe tomorrow. If not tomorrow, maybe Wednesday. If not Wednesday, we'll go before the end of the week. And something happens. He has a really good memory. And Saturday afternoon rolls around. And late afternoon, he, he says, I, I got to stop here. One of, one of my, my great friends growing up, Sean Varane's here today, and he walked in and blew my mind. I haven't seen this turkey in years. And I just looked at him and I said, it's crazy, Sean. I can't believe you're here. But, but Will, Will will say like, Daddy, you promised. You promised. And I'm like, oh, no. I didn't promise. I just said I would take you. <laughs> Not a promise. But he held me to it, right? Have you done that before? 
I mean, I remember, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, little kids will hold you to it. I've been around kids, you know, in church situations and at youth camps, and you tell them something like, tonight we're going swimming, or tonight we're going to have an extra hour. And inevitably, if you say, nope, we're going to bed early, some kid will go, you promised. And you know what? The reason they say that is because even when we mean the best, we often or sometimes we do not keep our promise. And so here it is. I mean, think about it. You've got a Bible filled with the promises of God. And these, we're going to see it in a moment. But the miracle is, is that because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, and that he is the seed that God forecasted would come and bless the earth, the miracle is, is that those who believe on Jesus Christ, he will save to the uttermost. I love it. I, I was hearing someone talk about it, and they said, kids, you know, don't trust in, don't bank on your parents' faith in the promise that you're a Christian. Some of you are here, and you're like, well, my, my mom's a Christian. My grandmother's a Christian. Everybody in this county, it seems like, has been a charter member, somebody in the family. My grandmother was a charter member of this church. It's not hard to be a charter member here. We're only 14 years old. I'm a charter member, you know. But, but people will say that kind of stuff. But listen, the promises of God are effective to those who believe in them. This morning, God calls us to believe ultimately in the promise that Jesus Christ is the one who saves us from our sin, that Jesus Christ is the only one who could work for our righteousness that he imputes to our account. He's the only one. He's the only one that can fulfill what he has promised. And what does he do here? This is really fascinating. He mentions it in verse 13. He says in that middle part of verse 13, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And then you see it again in verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now, now think about this. The examples that I was reading, I mean, some of them will come to your mind. How does this work, practical speaking, even in modern times? Growing up, people would say to gain validity, they would often promise to something greater. Can you ever think of something they would do? I promise on my grandmother's grave. I promise on this. I promise on that. And what happened? What they're doing is, ultimately, it's that your own word is not good by itself, one person said. You need something greater. You swear by something greater. And, and so what happens here is, if God wants to underscore and literally be like of great assurance in, an, in a way that he doesn't need to, but in a way that we can understand, what does he do? He can't make an oath by anyone greater than himself. He's God. So what does he do? It's, it's the idea that he doubly assures us that he will keep his word. I love this because, you know, there's so many guarantees. You know, are you ever swayed by guarantees on products? You go into a store, lifetime guarantee. That usually means it'll break within like two weeks. Lifetime guarantee, the free trial guarantee. And you know what they do? If, a lot of times they have these guarantees because they know people are going to be like me and they'll forget to send it back in. Have you ever done that? I've got stuff in my house I wanted to send back, but I didn't send it back in time. But I had a warranty or a guarantee of like, if this doesn't work, if this is not the greatest thing you've ever owned, send it back. Well, I forgot. 90 days later, you call them. They're like, sorry, you're a bum. You didn't send it in. But you know what? There's all these guarantees, but it's something different when God guarantees it. I tell you this morning, if we were honest with each other, one of the biggest struggles of faith that we have is that we need to be reminded that God keeps his word. Isn't it interesting that one of our biggest struggles of faith is not taking God at his word, not believing in the promises of God, not believing his way is better. Why do people fall into the things they fall into in the world? Why are we so lured 
by the garbage and the temptations and the deceptions of the world because we are so tempted to think that God is not faithful. Isn't it interesting? We have the same problem. We relate to our first parents, don't we? We relate to the idea of, has God really said? We relate to that whole temptation of the enemy. We relate to the idea of, like, has God really got our best interest? Is God really telling us the truth? And yet what we find here is that he doubled down. It's the idea that he wanted to show them. He guaranteed it with an oath. And he says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, the two unchangeable things appear to be not only God's promise, But God's oath, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. At the end of verse 16, he says, for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. In the New American Standard, if you've got that, it says, It's given as a confirmation, is an end of every dispute. The word dispute is the idea that that which was a controversy that was brought before a judge. The dispute was over whether or not a promise would be fulfilled and whether or not the character of the one who made the promise was good. And so what is he saying here? He's saying, look, God's faithful. God's word is good. And then in verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. This is amazing because Mike read it earlier, but listen to 2 Corinthians 1.20. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, when we trust in Christ, we're guaranteed salvation in him. We're guaranteed a place of refuge. And we're guaranteed now that we are the heirs of God in him. This is a remarkable term. Because it speaks about the fact that God has brought in his family all those who are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. That may sound confusing, but basically it means this. We understand what physical descendants mean. We understand the people that come from your body and your family tree. But in the Old Testament and following into the New, we learn that the spiritual descendants of Abraham are those who, like Father Abraham, did not work but believed on him. They believed in the promise. And now for those people, they learned that they are the heirs of God. I was thinking, you know, how, how comforting would it be to people who are going through great persecution and great trial and great distress to understand who they really were? In the eyes of the world, they were nothing. In the eyes of the world, they were tempted to bail. But in the eyes of God, they're heirs of the promise. They're heirs of the promise of God. And and what happens here is, is we see that God is calling us, just as he was calling the people of Hebrews, he's saying, look, walk in me and believe in my promises. Walk in me and endure. Walk in me by faith. Walk in me and trust in my word. These promises are for us. And and these promises remind us of the faithfulness of God. You know, when we look at this, there's a passage in Psalms that connects the word of God with the name of God. And the idea that is established there is that it says in Psalm 138, verse 2, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Wait a minute, what's the name of God represent? All of his character, all that he is. But do you realize the promises or the word of God 
are on the same equal basis as the name of God? Why? Because he's magnified it, because his promises are directly related to his name. Part of his character in his reputation is that he always keeps his word. Have you ever had somebody not believe you at face value? You tell them something and you find out they didn't believe you? What's the problem? Did they just not believe what you said or they just didn't trust you? They didn't trust you. Why? Because if they trusted you, your promise is connected to your character. And what what we find in the Bible is this, is that the promises of God reflect who he is. So what do we see so far? We see that God has made an oath. He didn't need to make an oath, but for us to understand that he would never leave us, never forsake his promises, he says, look, I have sworn by myself. But then what do we see? We see that his word is, 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 is to be trusted. His word is final. His word can be taken to the bank. We can trust it in all things. You see, who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We who have fled for refuge, isn't that an amazing term? If you're in Christ today, you fled for refuge. You fled for safety. You fled for protection. What are you fleeing protection from? From the condemnation of sin, the condemnation of the law. You recognize that apart from Christ, you will be judged in your sin. You will spend an eternity apart from God in hell. But what do you need? The promise given to Abraham. And all those who believe are the children of Abraham. And trusting in Christ brings you into the refuge of Jesus. I love this because you remember in the Old Testament, there was those places called the refuge, cities of refuge. And, and when you look at this word, it's, it's in the Greek of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's used of that. It's the cities of refuge in Numbers 35. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, the question I've got for everyone this morning is, have you fled for refuge in Jesus Christ? Because if you're not under refuge of Jesus, you're facing the condemnation of sin, the condemnation of the law. And you're under the wrath of God. And and in this passage, we're seeing a call. We're seeing, look, God fulfills his promises. He made a promise to Abraham. And Abraham trusted God. And God was faithful to his promise. And one of the promises that we see that he gave Abraham that's central here is that God would bless all the families of the earth through the descendant of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. And today, the Bible calls you to place your hope and your trust in this seed, in this descendant. And the beauty of this passage is if you place your hope in Jesus Christ, Christ fulfills his promise to you. They found refuge. Lastly today, the third reality of faith, hope, and promise. Faith is not only linked to the promises of God, These promises are guaranteed by God. But finally, our hope is tied to a steadfast anchor. You know, where is your hope tied to this morning? What are you hoping in? For the Christian, their hope is tied to the promises of God. Their hope is tied to Jesus Christ. People debate whether the anchor is the hope of the promise or whether it's speaking of Jesus Christ himself. But the neat thing is that both, both of them point to Jesus. It's the, it's the hope in the promises of Jesus or it's hope in Jesus himself. Either way, those are linked so close together. What are you hoping in today? Are you hoping in money? Are you hoping in people? Are you hoping in health? I mean, we talked about this in Romans 15. But the one reality that we know for sure is that everybody in here today is hoping in something. You're hoping in something. It may not be Jesus, but you've got to hope in something today. But what we see here is that there's only one hope that will never let us down. There's only one hope that can never disappoint and will always deliver. And that hope is the eternal reality 
that God keeps his word and that all the promises are yes in Jesus Christ. Every other hope, whatever it is, whether you put your hope in your health, in your job, in your popularity, in your athleticism, whatever it may be, it's all going to fade. But the hope that we have in Jesus is that which sustains us. It always delivers. And how, think about this, these pressured, persecuted believers, the author is urging to continue, urging to endure. How would they keep going through difficulty? How would they make it through the storms? They needed a sure and steadfast anchor. I remember growing up bass fishing with dad, and there'd be a lot of times where you know, you get, it, Chickamauga would be windy and you'd try to find a cove to get back in where the wind wasn't so high, the trees would break up the wind. And often, even back in those coves on windy, windy, windy days, it would still be moving you around. And we'd get near a point in a cove and we'd want to fish that point because he'd always be like, there's a bank, there's a river bank going through there or some kind of channel or some kind of creek bed or I'm showing you my ignorance of fishing. And, uh, and we would sit there and put that anchor in there. We'd throw the anchor out. And even then, you know, sometimes that anchor, we would be like, wait a minute, Dad, we put that anchor in, the wind's still moving us. It wasn't a steadfast and sure anchor. Now think with me this morning. How are we going to navigate in a world that's lost its mind? How are we going to navigate in a progressive culture that has multiple progressive churches that is going in every possible stream? And how are we going to navigate by being looked at potentially in the future as a bigot for holding to the truth of the word of God? How are we going to navigate in the crises of life? I remember growing up, you know, uh, sometimes you, you think you've had hard situations hit you, but you haven't been through much. But then you hit certain storms in your life. How are you going to make it, teenager, when your faith seems to crumble in a circumstance? How are you going to make it when you're crushed in a relationship? How are you going to make it when your health gets away from you and all of a sudden you're facing disease or facing sickness? What is it that's going to give you stability in the storms of life? I tell you, if we play a nominal Christian game, we will have no anchor whatsoever we will just be cast to and fro by every wave and by all the winds. But he calls upon these dear Christians in a message of hope. He says, look, learn from Abraham. Abraham believed God. He took it to the bank. And what happened? God delivered. He says, look, we've got a sure and steadfast hope, an anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place. This, this, this is such powerful imagery. There, there were some sources that said these big ships would send out like a pilot boat. And the pilot boat would take out the anchor and they would take the anchor and they would, they would make sure it was against the bedrock so that that big vessel, had, it was secure with the bedrock that it needed to hold that vessel in the water where it needed to be. That's the imagery that you see here. Ashore, it, it means... Firm, it can't be thrown down, secure. The word steadfast means fixed, sure, certain. It's the idea of sustaining one's steps in their going. It, it's the idea of something that doesn't break down under the weight of something that steps on it. Uh, you know, uh, it doesn't get crushed, have you driven? I've driven over so many kids' toys. Like, I mean, nice kids' toys. Like bikes, you know, the car starts going, and you're like, what is that? And you're like, it's, it's like the kids, uh, I don't even know what they call these things. They got so many things now. The, uh, it's not a skateboard. What are those things called? Ripstick. You run over a ripstick, and you immediately see that it can't uphold the pressure. What about you? But understand, the author of Hebrews is saying, look, we've got a sure and steadfast anchor. And this anchor, the, the imagery is powerful. I like what Tony Marita says here. He says that on the day of atonement, the high priest went into the most holy place and offered the blood of an animal in order to turn God's wrath away from Israel. Jesus is our high priest, entered the inner place behind the curtain, offered his own blood on our behalf. 
our anchor Jesus has gone before us as our forerunner to accomplish all that God's justice required. As our great high priest, Jesus has purchased our salvation and assured us of the promises of God. Thus, Jesus' atoning work on the cross predicates the Christian's hope and anchors the Christian's soul. That's good news this morning. He's our forerunner. He goes and prepares a place for us. And, and we see the imagery literally not only of the earthly tabernacle, but we see the imagery of the heavenly sanctuary. We see the imagery of Christ's exaltation. We see the imagery of the throne room of God where Christ is seated at the right hand. And we see that our anchor is secure. It is in the throne room of God. It's anchored to the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, so many questions pop out. Are you trusting in the promises of God? Have you lost sight that the Christian is to live a life of trusting these promises daily? This morning, have you trust in the ultimate fulfillment of Christ as the promised one? Have you believed in him? Be encouraged. If you believed in him, take the encouragement of the scriptures to know that you can rest, that God will fulfill his promises to you. But friend, don't stop there. It's just the beginning. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. And all that the word of God declares to us that are his children, we have promise after promise that he will see us through, promise after promise of what is to come. And just as the author wanted to encourage these weary Christians not to quit, this morning God's word calls us not to quit. It calls us to keep enduring. It calls us to keep walking. So this morning, keep on abiding. Keep on trusting. This morning, be doubly encouraged that God cannot lie, and he always keeps his word to us. It's fitting today, you know, to go into a time of response and then a time of the Lord's Supper, because today we're thinking and reflecting on, look at what Jesus Christ has done for us in his sacrificial death, in his resurrection. But this morning, would you stand with me as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper? I want you to stand a moment of reflection here. Have you trusted in the promises of God? Have you believed on Jesus Christ? Are you a spiritual heir of God? Through Jesus? The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's an outstanding promise. Those that put their hope and their trust in the promises that God gives, God always delivers. But this morning, he calls us to live this way, walk this way, trust in him. So just for a few moments, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is designed for those that are Christians. If you're here today and you're thinking, you know, I don't think I'm a Christian or a believer in Christ, the scripture would call you just to listen and to watch and to really just ask God what this means. Because in the taking of the Lord's Supper, we're actually revisiting all that Christ did for us at the cross in his life and his ministry and his death. And so today, I pray that as we go before the Lord's table, I pray that even now we would say, God, am I, am I living out of the promises that you've given? God, am I sluggish? God, am I spiritually lazy? God, am I walking in the rest that you came to give me? God, am I walking in that hope? But even as you ask yourself that question, I want you to reflect on the heart and the grace of Jesus, that he loves you so much that this passage is designed to comfort and encourage weary and restless people to find hope in the anchor of Jesus Christ. So this morning, find Christ by his grace, run to him, and let's rest in the fact that he is the anchor of our soul. We're going to pray, and then we're going to be seated, and if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, I've got an 
a request to you. We're going to be finished up here in a few minutes, and I know you've got probably things to do, but if you're here and you're thinking, I can't leave this place until I really get settled about my walk with God and my fellowship with the Lord, we beg you to stay. Stick around. Let's talk and look at God's word. I'm confident that if the Holy Spirit's working in your heart, that he'll be working in your heart in the next 10 minutes, not just now. But right now, look into Jesus, trust in him, believe in the promise that he's given. He is the one who can save. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. And God, I pray that we would learn from Abraham, Lord, to trust you, to, to look for the things that have not happened and trust by faith that they are sure and they are confirmed in your word. And Lord, I pray that that would give us such comfort. And Lord, that it would be such a guiding directive to our life. Oh Lord, help us to be in your word and meditate on your word. And I pray your spirit would renew our minds to cherish the promises of God as literally like Octavius Winslow said, the jewelry of the Bible, that we would cherish them, that we wouldn't just memorize them or we wouldn't just know what they are, but Lord, they'd be dear to our heart because they would combat the lies of the devil, the flesh, and the world. And God, we would live by them, abide in them. And Lord, I pray that we would see how these truths aid the individual seeking to endure and persevere in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you'd be seated, here's how we're gonna try to do this today. And uh, because we've got, I'm so glad we've got a, a good crowd, but because we've got a good crowd, if we all get up at the same time, it'll be very difficult. So what we're gonna do is uh, just, just sort of watch the flow of the room and starting from the back, if the back row could get up in this side of the room, we've got, I think, about 80 uh, cups and 80 things of bread over here, and we've got, uh, we've counted, and we think we have enough for everybody, but if you get over here and you're thinking, oh, no, there's nothing left, there's going to be more over here, so on the opposite side of the room back here, there's another table over here by the exit, and so why don't we, uh, both sides of each room, the back rows go first, and then move all the way up to the front of the back, this section, and then back here, as you just see the, the lines start to move, I think that would be the way it would work best. So uh, Randy's going to play for us, and uh, at this time, if those back rows could go get uh, the bread and the cup and get both of them at the same time and go back to your seat. Thank you.
it is a time of reflection. And, uh, you know, one of the, s- the serious things that you learn in 1 Corinthians 11 is that Paul calls us to the seriousness uh, that literally there had been people that had died because of their frivolous way that they approached the Lord's table. And so it's a very serious thing. I think one thing that we're reminded of when we come to the Lord's table is the call of daily repenting and confessing. And so we come, and and, and what an opportunity. Uh, You may be thinking, wow, the passage that we're in, the, the Lord is really calling me to recognize spiritual sluggishness and laziness and apathy in my life. It's an opportunity to worship God by, by confessing and, and, and cooperating, just saying, Lord, I want to follow your word, to be reproved by the word. But we see that, again, this is something designed for those who are truly believers in Christ. And so today, when we look at this, we're learning about, if you're not a believer, we're learning about what Christ did for us. It says in verse 23, and what we're going to do is, uh, I left it over here. We read in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we eat of the bread, we remember the body of our Lord that was broken for us. And again, remember, as his body was broken for us, it it literally becomes that fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and all the blessing that would come, but it also is the inauguration of a new covenant. And so as we take of this bread, let's remember that through the body of Christ that we can even begin to understand the benefits and the blessings of what we read today. Let's take of this. Verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's exciting to think that Hebrews says Jesus not only had to be divine, but he had to be a human representative. He had to have a body. He had to be divine. And so in order for there to be an inauguration of a new covenant, he had to be the perfect mediator He had to check off all the boxes that only God himself could accomplish as a man. And so as we read this, we're getting ready to get into Jesus is better than the old covenant here in the next few chapters. And what a reminder, because as we take of the cup, we remember his blood. We remember the inauguration of the new. Let's drink of the cup in celebration of what Christ has done for us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, that he is supreme, that he is better. And Lord, we thank you that he is a steadfast and sure hope, that he fulfills all of the promises and the word. And God, we thank you that it's only through his life and death that we can be reconciled to you. And Lord, I pray today that as we leave, that God, your spirit would take what we've learned today and that it would be precious to our heart, that, Lord, we would recognize that your word can be trusted. Lord, that we see that through the eyes of faith, trusting in what is sure, it gives us strength to navigate the uncertainty of life. But, Lord, thank you just as you enabled Abraham to trust that which was yet to come. That, God, through the power of your spirit, you enable us through your word to trust in that which is just concrete, not iffy, but certain. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you that you care so much about our our lives, that you tenderly deal with us and call us to repentance and call us back to fellowship. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.